0: This is the best of the Glenbeck Program.
1: The fusion of entertainment and enlightenment. This is the Glenbeck Program.
2: Out of all of the stories that we should pay attention to, there is a story out of Alabama that is an absolute must hear and must think about. That's coming up in a minute. Also, the president of the NRA, I would say icon at this point, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, joins us next in one minute. There are only a couple of organizations that I uh, belong to. I, uh, I'm i not really a joiner, uh, but I joined my church. And... I joined the NRA. Those, I think, are the only two clubs, if you will, or only two things that I have real membership in. Uh, and it's because I believe deeply in both of them. And the president of the NRA, Colonel uh, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, joins us now.
0: Hello, Oliver. Well, How are you? I'm glad to be with you, brother. And I'm uh, glad you're a member. Uh, yeah. And so I want you to take this month's magazines and tear out that right after my column on uh, page nine Mm -hmm. and tear those out and give your best friends on the planet earth memberships in the nra for christmas merry christmas buddy i think i could do
2: that thank you very much okay so um we have you on because you're starting a new show on nra tv Yeah. Uh, And the first one is done by a guy who I'm not sure people really know. The average person, they just don't know who this guy is. And he is one of the greatest heroes of our lifetime, I believe.
0: All true. Dave Eubank is a, a former U.S. Army Ranger, a Special Forces officer, a missionary, and the founder of Free Burma Rangers. And I had covered him when I still worked for Fox, made him part of one of our documentaries up in Kurdistan, and went back out there because this man has such a great story. He is an American hero, thus the name of the show, and he's one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever met. He is out there with his family. In fact, he was in Syria yesterday with a congressional delegation. He lives in Burma. He has a home in in Washington State. He has the kind of, of courage that is so remarkable. It just had to be our first story in this, in this yeah, he, be a long series.
2: He really, truly believes that he's on a mission from God uh, yeah. to help people and that, you know, God will protect him for as long as God needs him to do his thing. And he brings his his family with him. And he has he's been in some of the worst places in the world trying to save people who are being uh,
0: oppressed. Well, we were out there with him in Mosul, and I can tell you that was the worst place in the world. Thankfully, it's getting better now. But what he does is he takes his family with him, uh, his lovely wife and his two gorgeous daughters and his son.
2: How how old are, its,
0: how old are his children? Uh, oldest of 15, 16. She's the only 16-year-old I know that can drive a Humvee. Thank God she can because uh, she saved a lot of lives by just putting that sucker on the road and going out and picking up casualties and bringing them back to a field hospital that they had set up. You know, there's a lot, as you and I both know well, there's a lot of groups out there that will provide medicine and food and water and the essential supplies, but there's very few that will deliver them to the front lines of a conflict like this. And that's what makes this guy so remarkable. Dave walked right up to me one day. We're up in the berm right around, uh, around Mosul, getting ready to go into the city. And a casualty load came in from across the berm, helped by the Kurdish soldiers, the Peshmerga. And, and every one of these folks was badly wounded. And Dave raced out there in the middle of no man's land to bring him back. We've got one very remarkable scene in it. In fact, it's part of the tease for the show where he spots a little girl who's the Mm -hmm. only survivor of one of these massacres by ISIS. Mm -hmm. And she's wrapped in her mother's clothing. And what Dave does, only Dave could do, because he knew who to call on the telephone. He calls an Iraqi general, and the Iraqi general eventually loans him a tank. And Dave races up behind the tank right up to where the kid is, can't get out because he has to cross an open space of about 50 yards. And he gets on the phone with a U.S. Army officer and a Marine artilleryman, and they drop smoke in between Dave and this hospital that ISIS had taken over. And it's an enormous fortress. I mean, it's got anti-aircraft weapons, anti-tank weapons, lots and lots of guys with guns. And with just that tank to protect him, goes right up to the edge of this battle, races out, grabs the little girl and brings her back. And the prayer he says just before he goes is as powerful as anything I've ever seen. And he says, you know, afterwards, he said, I I said, you're a hero. He said, nobody ever wants to be a hero. Nobody tries to be a hero. And what, of course, a hero is, is a person who puts themselves at risk for the benefit of others. That's clearly what Dave does every single day. He does it in Burma. He's done it in South Sudan. He's done it in Iraq. He's done it in Kurdistan. And he's done it in Syria. And without him, scores of people would have died that he saved.
2: So if you are a uh, listener of this program and you are involved with the Nazarene Fund, you know that the Nazarene Fund now is in Burma. uh, And uh, the guy who is is working for the Nazarene Fund in Burma is the, the guy who had the rifle behind the tank and stepped out in front of the tank and started laying down fire. So he could go run out and get the child. Um, and uh, it's it's uh, they're amazing people. And this guy is one of the most amazing heroes around. You can find it now on NRA dot com. That's NRA TV uh, dot com. So, Oliver, can I can I ask you something? It, because you are Hello, you are such a you are such a piece of history now. Um, and you have been for a long time, but now that we have distance from things and we see the world, as you as you see what you went through um, in the 1980s and how the world worked, how do you view that period of time compared to what we're going through now and what you're seeing happening in our country?
0: Well, I, quite frankly, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed to see that we... I was blessed to work for a great president. His goal, right from the very beginning of his eight years, was to end the evil empire, and he did. And of course, that finished uh, in the in the in the administration of the guy we just buried here, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. I look at what we went through back in those days to eliminate one of the greatest threats to mankind that ever was, which is the evil empire, the Soviet Union. It's all its satellites. And I look at what's happening today with terrorism. I look what's going on in our border, and I say to myself, the polarization in the city where I have to go to work, Washington, D.C., the polarization is so great that a president, this president, cannot get the Congress to do what the Congress ought to do to protect our borders. And a a nation that has no borders is not a country. I mean, the the meeting with uh, Pelosi and Schumer and the president in the Oval Office is uh, is an example of how incredibly left-leaning our Congress is today. Mm-hmm. That that's a shock to me, quite frankly, because I would have thought the American people did not want this kind of thing to be happening.
2: As I look at what's happening on our border, and I've, I've been I've been watching it for a while, and I've been I've been comparing it to what's happening on the borders of Israel. I, I believe that we are at the beginning of. You know, a uh, almost a a Palestinian little mini state there on our border uh, where we are going to be used just like the Israelis are used um, by the media. They were just they're going to attack. They'll do things just to continue to bring America down to her knees. I think we're in a I think we're in a really uh, bad place to where. You can't even recognize truth. I mean, there are people who are refugees that should be allowed in. But there are also people who wish us ill that should not be let in.
0: Well, and, and what you just point out, the Israelis did solve that problem. They, built a, wall. they built a wall. And, right. and on it, you can't argue with the, the effect of it. And it, it, it stopped the kind of terrorism that Israel was experiencing almost every day. It just eliminated it. And at some point, they're probably going to have to build a wall around Gaza. Look, at the Iranians are stirring up trouble in that part of the world, the likes of which should never have happened, all because the last administration in Washington, D.C., let them get away with it, in fact, helped pay for some of it, gave, gave money back to them that they used for that very purpose. What's going on on our southern border is not the direct consequence of that, but you've got to know that they're taking advantage of it. And... Everybody that knows what's going on in the border. You've been there. I've been there. Many of our listeners have been. That open border is an, an abscess in the health of America. And what we saw happening before the tear gas was used with rocks and bottles and, mm-hmm. and feces being thrown at border patro- U.S. Border Patrol, it's an outrage. And it should not be happening. My hope is that the president sticks with his guns.
2: Mine too. Um, the... Um... You know, everybody is talking about uh, Cohen and Flynn and everything else today. You've been at the eye of a hurricane like that before. What does it What does it feel like to be in that position? And you, it must be very lonely.
0: They, well, I was I was always certain of the outcome. It was just a matter of how long it was going to take and how how much it was going to cost to get there. Mm-hmm. I, I never once doubted what my attorney Brendan Sullivan told me repeatedly, it's going to turn out okay. It's just going to be a long, hard slog to get there. In my case, it took five years. I was indicted in in March of 1988. The trial was over in 1992, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and I was eventually vindicated. The the challenge today is they'll never do what they did to me. They'll never put a hearing together like that. They should never have brought back the special prosecutors. I mean, it's the entire opposite of justice. In in justice, you have a crime committed, you find the person who perpetrated it, and you give them justice. In this Mm. case, you find a person, and then you go try to look for a a crime that they committed. And that's just the opposite of what justice really is. And unfortunately, I I said this to the president at the time, don't let this happen. And unfortunately, they allowed the the appointment, and you're going to get what you've... What you're always going to get with these circumstances is they've got a person. Now they're going to have to find a crime for which they're going to convict them. And, of course, that's what Flynn's going through right now.
2: Wow. Great, uh, great perspective on that. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, president of the NRA and the host of American Heroes, now on NRA NRATV.com. Always good to talk to you, sir. Thank you Merry so much. That's my friend. Merry Christmas. God bless. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm Glenn Beck. Stu is with us today. I want to talk to you about this, um, this story out of Alabama that is just killing me. Nine-year-old girl has committed suicide. A nine-year-old girl. This story should be Everywhere. She committed suicide. She's from Alabama. Because she was being bullied. She's in fourth grade. She was being called names. Made fun of. Mocked. The bullying came from her friendship. With another little boy. And they weren't the same color in Alabama. And you can't be friends with a little boy that's not the same color in Alabama, apparently. Things haven't changed except the color. This is is a nine-year-old black girl who befriended a little boy who was white. They were friends. The white kid, uh, his parents would drive him to school, and so they would stop by her house and pick her up, and they'd drive to school together. And all of her black friends said, why are you friends with a white person? You're black. You're a sellout. You're ugly. You're stupid. What's wrong with you? all over her fri- all over her friendship if 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 the role was reversed i'm sure people would try to exploit this and it would be everywhere and this little boy would be remembered as a hero who just couldn't take it anymore. This little girl is a hero. Her name was Mackenzie Adams. Made fun of every day because she befriended a person who was white. I prefer to tell this story because she befriended someone who was different than she was. Racism doesn't know color. Hatred doesn't know color. It doesn't know nationality. It doesn't know religion. Hatred just is. And hatred is inside all of us. You know, we each have a good side and a bad side. And if you if you deny that, well, then you're a liar and probably pretty dangerous. There's a good side and a bad side in all of us. And what started out, I think, as trying to Help people know that the bad side was too maybe too strong in them has turned out to be a force for evil itself because it was arrogant and wrong to say that racism is a white problem. Racism is a human problem. It's not a black problem white problem, yellow problem, brown problem. It's a human problem. The family members had transferred, had transferred Mackenzie to another elementary school because she was bullied at her school in Linden. They had Talk to the school about it. Children were writing nasty notes in class. I don't know how she did it, and I don't want to know how she did it. But I want you to remember the name Mackenzie Adams. You know, we all have our low points. We all have our bottom. I'm wondering when America is going to hit her bottom. When is America going to say, you know, we've got a problem. And it's just out of control and we can't. everything I try to do won't stop it. And so I surrender everything that I thought. <laughs> I surrender. I'm not going to fight it this way anymore because this isn't working. In fact, this is making it worse when is America going to be humble enough to say, we all have a problem, and I play a role in it? When? When will the press, when will the politicians say, we each play a role? We each need forgiveness. You know, why are we, why are we banning each other? Why are we deplatforming people? Because there is no forgiveness. Somebody wins the Heisman uh, trophy uh, might take it away because, well, look what he said when he was 14. There is no forgiveness. There is no decency, no forgiveness, no kindness. Restore that this holiday season and do it in the name of Mackenzie Adams. God bless you, Mackenzie, and God bless your family.
0: The best of the Glenn Beck program.
2: Well, I've got a whole bunch of really important stuff to talk about, Stu. I don't know what you have. Uh, If you had to pick out of all of the stack of stuff that you have, and the huge stack I have, uh, I've got one story that has to be done today. Okay, yeah, I've got a pretty important one as well, I think. So I have the Nigerian president is denying that he died and has been replaced by a clone. He's denying it? He's denying it. Despite the fact that they look identical? Identical. You look at the pictures side by side of of him now, the clone, Mm -hmm. and the real guy? You cannot tell (laughs) the difference. I mean, maybe. Uh, That's just unbelievable. Uh, So they say that he died on a medical vacation uh, in London last year uh, after he received uh, treatment for an undisclosed illness. But then he went back. And uh, because he's running for reelection, he couldn't do it because he was dead. Right. He's dead. So they had to. So they made a clone. And he's now saying, no, this a quote. It's the real me. I assure you. Well, that's exactly what a clone would say. Exactly right. Right. That's what I was thinking. That's what I would say. And I'm a clone. Oh, no. Well, you see, you wouldn't say that if you were really a clone. If I were really a clone, here's what I would say. You genetically engineered me, and I look and feel like this? (laughs) Cure some stuff while you're in there. If this guy is the Nigerian president and he's a clone, he's pissed because they cloned him and genetically engineered him to be exactly the same as the 76-year-old guy who is about to kick it anyway.
3: Now, if you are looking for another uh, part-time job, and I don't know if this would be you exactly. Now, this is the story that you think is really important? I think so. This is what we do for a living. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Inside the underground breast milk
2: market. Oh my gosh, it's finally been exposed. (laughs) The underground breast milk market.
3: It actually is kind of a fascinating story because Mm -hmm. uh, there's a market and a lot of times, a lot of places will ban uh, the idea that you could pump your own breast milk and sell it to someone else to feed to their child. That Mm -hmm. is what we're talking about. Now, wait a minute. Hang on just a second. Mm -hmm. This
2: is this in the United States? In the United States. Of course it is. Yes. Why, Why? Of course it is. Uh, because that's where I'm involved in it. Oh, okay, <laughs> I've been pumping these. Uh, no milk is coming out, but I've been pumping like crazy. It hurts. They look of size.
3: So, um, uh, so they. Um, it's an interesting regulation question because I think there's a there's some there's at some level th- there's a feeling I think around, uh, among people that it just doesn't feel right. Right? Like, it just doesn't feel right that that's you should be doing that. That's what a wet that.
2: nurse was. Do you ever read mm-hmm. things right. like Mary Poppins mm-hmm. or whatever, and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, well, it was my wet nurse. That's what a wet nurse was. Right. And so th- that doesn't happen very often anymore.
3: Um, but, Well, I mean, it does. But it, it, it. the idea here is that you're actually selling for profit. Right? Oh, like, my gosh. Right? No way. And that's, of course, where all these things get nasty. Because... If someone was doing it for free, you might look at it and say, oh, well, that's 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 OK. It's charitable. They're helping if they really if, if breastfeeding is that important to a mom and this is the only way that they can get it done.
2: Um, OK, well, well, there see, you go. I, I have to tell you, I'm a little uncomfortable, you know, with the with the term breast milk black market. I mean, if it is like, Psst, come here, I've got some breast milk for you. <laughs> I wouldn't buy it. But if it was somebody that I knew and somebody was a friend of the fr- family, and, and they said, you know, I can provide real breast milk. And you knew them, and you're like, you know what, I'll pay you for that. What's the problem? Well,
3: I mean, you know, that is the that's the issue here, I think, does come down to the, the exchange, right? It becomes, can you make a profit off of this? Because so many places have said no. Now, there's a black market only because people have outlawed the idea that you could sell it to someone. Uh, It's not like they're actually people like in trench coats, I don't think, pumping in the back alleys. (laughs) This is like this is a situation where a slave labor. (laughs) It's a situation where people want to share their they want to be able to sell their breast milk and the government's stopping them. So why? Why?
2: As long as it doesn't as long as there's not somebody behind them going, keep lactating. Right. You know, well, I mean, there are risks, right, with disease, potentially someone could have it. But you you couldn't easily make this so it's safe.
3: You, could, if you, Yeah, if you right. allowed it, right? If you yes. allowed it in front of everyone to you do. If you let it in the, in the light of day. I mean, this is you see, we always have this argument, yeah. you know, this is a libertarian sort of position for sure. But it's like, you know, when you come to selling organs, right? That's always, that be, those things become controversial. I think because it kind of just grosses us out in some way. It doesn't feel right. Organs are right. a little
2: different. Yeah. Organs are a little different. And, and by the way, if the Nigerian president mm-hmm. uh, is selling his breast milk as a clone, I want to know about it. I want to know about it. All right, so we're going to move on. Clone <laughs> milk is, is not is not currently allowed <laughs> so to be ye- So yesterday, yesterday, we can't do clones yet. I don't know if anybody knows that. Uh, yesterday, we told you about a World War II veteran. Uh, his name is uh, 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 Lauren K- uh, Kissick. And he landed at Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. And the thing that caught my eye is... This guy, he was 19 years old. He's always wanted to go back. He is the only survivor now of the, of the 453rd, uh, he was, which was out of Fort Knox, Kentucky. He was a machine gunner on D-Day. His His wife never really wanted to travel, and he would just never leave her side. They were married for 71 years. She, unfortunately, has just passed away from leukemia, and the two daughters now are trying to uh, save up enough money to bring dad to the D-Day 75th anniversary over in France, which happens next summer. So they were trying to raise $12,000. And I think I don't remember how much they had yesterday, but now they have $19,000. And so uh, I don't know if they've told dad yet, but we have Lori and Julie, the two daughters, uh, on the phone now from Tacoma, Washington. Hi, Lori. Hi, Julie.
1: Good morning. Yes. How are good you? Good morning. Very we're well. Great. Thank you. Thanks
2: to you. It's uh, it's good to talk to you. You know, I I I was thrilled to read th- what you were doing for your dad. Have you told him yet? Or are you saving it for Christmas or?
1: No, he knows. Um, we told him um, that we were working on this, and um, so no, he is aware, and um, he is he is uh, quite ecstatic to be able to go back. And I think he's in a little bit of disbelief right now. But, um, yeah, it's a uh, thank you so much for your help. We never would be here without you. And um, it is just absolutely uh, overwhelming to see how m- the kind thoughts that people are sending yeah. and donation. It's just uh, so encouraging and so heartwarming.
2: Well, first of all, it wasn't me. Uh, it's this audience. <laughs> this audience yeah, is is really I, remarkable. <laughs> um
1: It's incredible. We we've I've read the comments and I I cry when I read them. I have an 18 year old daughter and we were reading them and we were just all choked up about people mm. giving ten dollars, five dollars. It, it it just it's overwhelming. It just it went from four thousand to over eighteen thousand, nineteen thousand in less than 24 hours. I just yeah. we're just dumbfounded and so grateful. Thank you.
2: Uh, now you could take that extra. And maybe fly him first class and really just really treat your dad for something remarkable. Or yeah. we could take a cut of that and spend it on something useless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thoughts? Thoughts? What do you think? What do you think? It's <laughs> a tempting offer, it. isn't I? it? Tempting offer. <laughs> um, so
1: yeah, several people had mentioned that, you know, um, since we were going over goal, that maybe we could get him a first class flight. So we're yeah. going to try to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have
2: to. He, he will. He will uh, love it. Is he is he healthy enough to really appreciate all of it?
1: Yes, Yes. he is. Um, He's quite mobile and he's very alert. Um, You know, I mean, he's with it. He's still driving, you know, maybe shouldn't be, but he is. But um, he yeah, he's very active socially. And, um, yeah, so there is no issues, you know, he's, he's quite mobile. He can get around great. In fact, we, we have a hard time keeping track of him. We tell (laughs) him to check in and we can't find him. That's great. (laughs) It's a problem.
2: (laughs) After 71 years of marriage, you had to be worried about, uh, him because usually, I mean, people like that, they just, they grow into one and it's beautiful to see how's he handling, how's he handling that?
1: Um, He's handling it. Um, We're, you know, we, we see him and talk to him every day. We're both really close. And so um, we're just making sure that he's eating properly. He's taking his blood pressure medicine as he's supposed to, and, and just kind of keeping up with that. Mm. And as my sister said, he's he keeps himself very busy, um, and it is hard to track him down sometimes because he won't turn his cell phone on. So um, he <laughs> yeah. can't hear it. <laughs> well, <laughs> his hearing isn't so good, but everything else is great. <laughs> Every, everyone loves him, and they spend a lot of time. The neighbors, um, my sister spends a ton of time. He spends a couple nights a week at my house with my husband and my daughter and I, and he'll just hang out. So he's a very much a people person and loves to be around people.
2: Well, two things. Um, A, I want to put you in touch with somebody who is trying to record all of the remaining uh, voices of everybody who fought in World War II. Uh, That would be
1: awesome. He's
2: he's making an amazing archive, and so I'll put you in touch with him. But I want to ask you a favor. Will you take our audience with you so when you go, alert us and then make some videos and take some pictures so we can follow your dad and you guys on this trip?
1: You know, absolutely. Um, In fact, some of the comments had been that they looked forward to hearing about the trip, and and that sort of triggered in me that we needed to chronicle this. We needed to make it um, so that other people could share in the moments that we're sharing with him. And so, um, absolutely, we will make that a priority to to do. Um,
2: and and yeah. we and we'd love and we'd love to talk to him either before you go or after you go, if that's appropriate.
1: Oh yes, that would be appropriate. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
2: Lori. He'll
1: probably talk your ear off.
2: That's <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. I tell you, we had a hundred. What was what? What was he? A hundred and three. We, ha- we had a guy here who was a big fan of ours, and he just passed away because he was hit by a oh. truck. Um oh, you're no. Kidding. no, it was How awful. Tragic. Yeah. Um, he was out riding his bike, and somebody hit him. He was 103 or heaven. so. The guy could—he wow. sat there, and he told us about what it was like the day the stock market crashed in 29. It was— incredible we love hearing stories from from uh yeah. these people Yeah, so,
1: he, he has some fabulous stories <laughs> Yeah,
2: that's good that's good okay yeah. guys thank you so much congratulations and we thank will thank you so
1: much for everything
2: merry christmas okay we have something really exciting to share with you when we were in florida a gentleman come uh, came up to me and he said uh Glenn, I just won a car. Uh, his name is Rick Rudolph, and he told me the greatest story ever. He entered into the Mercury One raffle for a brand new Mercedes. How are you doing, sir? Good. Thank you. It's <laughs> so glad to see you here. It's <laughs> great being here. Okay. So, Rick, first of all, what do you do for a living?
4: Uh, I have a twin brother, and we run a chemical distribution business. Okay. Ohio. So you're a drug dealer. I'm a drug dealer. Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> okay, good, all
2: right. I, have a, I have a brother. We're in chemical distribution. Okay, all right. Uh, and you brought your daughter with you. Yeah, okay. Paige. Uh-huh. Hi, Paige. How Hi, are you? Good, thank you. Right. How are you today? Very good. Good. So, Rick, tell me the story that you told me in line. When you came up and said, I, uh, I'm i the one who won the car for Mercury One.
4: Well, I every year I've entered the raffle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how many years it's been now, mm-hmm. but several. And uh, that my daughter was in a... Uh, uh, bad car accident and pretty much messed up her car mm-hmm. and i i called her a couple of weeks before i sent the money in for the tickets and said i'm gonna win you your new car <laughs> and we just get the year off to we'll win we'll the year in good fashion right 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 and uh we were traveling and i was somewhere and the phone rang and Got great news, and I just held the phone up in the kitchen and went,
1: <laughs> <"Sat> "Back, <laughs> what <in> the car?"
4: <laughs> so you call your daughter right away. I call my daughter. Said, "Got your new car?" <laughs> so, she
1: said, "No." So
2: Paige, <laughs> congratulate. Are you giving her the car now? In her name, we it's picked it up last name. night. That's because you totally could have backed out of that. I mean, it was a joke. I could have. It was okay. totally I told a joke. Yeah. Totally
3: <laughs> needed
1: to join the Mercedes family, but yeah. <laughs> he, I wasn't going to say no. <laughs> right. He's one of the most kindest and generous. People that is right so
2: cool. So yeah. cool. So first of all, how are you after the accident? Were you okay?
1: yeah Yeah. Um, earlier in the year, my right lung had collapsed, and the car accident mm-hmm. recollapsed it. But they did lung surgery. So after, I don't know five days in ICU. I'm, I'm healed. I ran an awesome half marathon at Joshua wow. tree in the desert. Wow. So yeah, I'm feeling good and strong.
2: So. Totals your car.
1: Um, it didn't total my car, but I'm pretty sure pretty. Geico should have. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. But, <laughs> yeah. All right. yeah. But, but the,
5: um, yeah, but the
4: collapse long didn't have anything to do with her MMA fighting.
5: No, well, it was MMA. Had nothing no.
4: nothing to do with no. that.
2: Are you an I, MMA fighter?
4: No, no. I, w-
1: I would, I would kickbox. I had a couple of kickboxing fights, but okay. no, no MMA for me. I I'm have a
2: feeling. I have a feeling. Dad doesn't like the kickboxing.
1: Um, no, I. I well, <laughs> no.
2: Why no. is that, Dad? Have you seen <laughs> that? <laughs> yes, I
4: have. Did you have a clap slug. Well, when the foot comes in here, about forty miles an hour. Yeah
2: yeah that might do it yeah yeah that uh that sucks although your daughter can defend herself oh don't mess with her. yeah don't yeah. mess with her so congratulations on the car
1: thank you so much and i'm so, really excited are,
2: you guys flew in flew in and, uh
4: last night and on the way on the airplane I, I uh emailed the the dealer and i said you know what i think we better pick that up tonight because we're going over to the studio tomorrow to see lisa <laughs> and I, I don't think we'll have time. And of course, we weren't
2: expecting this. Yeah. <laughs> and so you guys are going. You guys get in the car, and driving home today. Yeah. What a great Christmas. Yeah. Quite absolutely. A great Christmas. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, Congratulations. Thank, thank you
6: very much. You're it's welcome. to be here.
2: And thank you for supporting Mercury One. And I'm so glad you won. Love what you guys are doing. Thank Love you. It. It's great. Love it. God bless you. you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right.
0: This is. The best of the Glenn Beck program, the fusion
1: of entertainment and enlightenment. This is the Glenn Beck program.
2: So I don't know about anybody else, and it's partly the holidays. It's also partly because who has credibility on anything anymore? I, this this Trump uh, Mueller debacle. Who do you trust, Cohen? Who do you trust, Mueller? Trump? What's really happening? Well, there is one guy that I trust. Andy McCarthy. He's a contributing editor of the National Review. uh, And he is a former federal prosecutor in New York. And he came out and he's a Trump supporter. And he said, "Just reading what they're putting out. And I worked in those offices. I wrote those kinds of things. And I'm telling you, they're going to indict the president. And it's a felony. But it also, there's more to this story. And so we are going to talk to Andy McCarthy in a minute. All right, we have uh, Andrew McCarthy uh, on with us, contributing editor of the uh, National Review. Andy? I was you are one of the only voices that have penetrated my world when it comes to uh, what's happening with the Trump investigation, because you have credibility and uh, I know that you're a Trump supporter, so you don't have an axe to grind. And so when you say I think he's going to be indicted because this is the way this is being written, uh, it carried some weight and I wanted to talk to you about it. How are you, Andrew?
5: Andrew? I'm doing I'm doing just great.
2: How are you? i'm 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 great. I've been and I don't know if other people feel this way, but I've been really confused with all that's going on because it's all leaks or speculation. and uh, you know I'm just waiting for the thing to just when the shoes drop, then we'll t- talk about it. But you are a federal a former New York federal invest uh, sorry prosecutor. And so you used to write. The the things like you just read from uh, Cohen's, uh, right. um, what, what do you call it? What was what, what, sentencing memorandum? The sentencing memorandum. So you right. used to write it and uh, those things, and you say this is very telling. Can you explain?
5: Sure. I, I think Glenn, you're right to uh, be suspicious when you hear the leaked information because obviously the people who leak are telling you the they're sort of mining the parts of the story they want you to hear and holding back other stuff. Whereas when they do these court filings, this was a 40 page document that is customarily filed about a week or two in advance of the imposition of sentence by the court. You get a, a full flavor of what the government's theory about the cases and, and where they're going with the investigation. And it seemed to me that this sentencing memo is more directed at President Trump than it is at Cohen. Uh, Sentencing memos are interesting in in terms of legal filings because they're not kind of um, dry, legal, issue-oriented submissions. They're almost like jury arguments, except they're meant to persuade the sentencing judge. So they they tend to be more uh, forceful and colorful and um, sort of filled with their prosecution theory. And here, this one reads in the part of it that deals with the campaign finance laws as a testimonial to the importance of those laws to the integrity of the system and how they are meant to make sure that the rich and the powerful uh, don't usurp uh, all of the power in the system and uh, designed to fight against public cynicism about money in politics. I mean, it almost seemed to me like it was was, uh, drafted with the president in mind more than Cohen. And then I look at the other attendance situations or or attendance circumstances uh, that you have here. Number one, they didn't really need these campaign finance counts on Cohen. His sentence is really driven by the bank fraud and the tax fraud counts. These add negligibly at most to his case, but they're obviously critical in connection with Trump. At the guilty plea allocution, they gratuitously had him say that he was directed by Trump in connection with these payments. That is not something that was necessary to the factual basis for Cohen's own plea. And ordinarily, prosecutors in public proceedings do not go out of their way to implicate uncharged people in felonies. So it seemed to me they were sort of reaching to do that. And it doesn't I don't see that they have any other purpose of doing that, except that they want to lock Cohen in on this version of events. And this is their uh, chance of doing it. And then the other thing I would point to is they have given immunity, I believe, to four different people in this campaign finance investigation. Campaign finance is not a very serious uh, felony in the greater scheme of things they've given immunity to two people connected to the national Enquirer, and i believe two people connected with the uh with the trump organization which relates to the structuring of the reimbursement payment to cohen i don't think they gave four people immunity to tighten up the case on cohen that they didn't need so all right those are the tea leaves.
2: okay so So what does that tell you they're going to do with Trump?
5: Well, it seems to be they're going to indict him. One of the things, Glenn, that I should have said was that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what these two campaign finance counts allege. Most people, I think, believe that because Cohen had a $2,700 limit uh, as a normal contributor— that these payments were way above that limit and that's why he had to plead guilty. But very interestingly, the first of the counts is not that Cohen made an illegal payment, it's that he caused a third party, namely the, the business entity that controls the National Enquirer, to make, a, to make a payment that was illegal for the National Enquirer, to make, And the point here is, it's, the theory is, even if a transaction would be legal as to you, if you did it yourself, um, it is still illegal to cause a third party to do something that would be unlawful as to that third party. Uh, and it seems to me that that answers directly what Trump's lawyers have been saying about this which is that the president because he was the candidate did not have a limit on what he could spend on his own campaign now i've always thought that was a kind of a flawed explanation because there's there's two parts that are important to campaign finance one is the limits but the probably the more important one is reporting
0: uh-huh. so
5: even a candidate has to report what he spends um but for for our narrow purpose here if Cone, if Cohn is being directed by Trump and they have Cohn plead guilty to causing a third party entity to make an illegal contribution, it seems obvious to me that Trump also has to be guilty of that. So it, seemed, it, it, it at least looks to me like that That's is the, the case they're trying that to make. Right.
2: Okay. So let's pursue this a bit more. Let me just take a quick break. Uh, and then we're going to come right back to um, to Andy. Do you have any outrage-addicted people in your life?
4: Oh, you know what pisses me off about that?
2: You want to help them, but you're constantly
3: dodging things that are being thrown, and you don't know how.
4: <laughs> Try giving them a copy of Glenn Beck's latest book, Addicted to Outrage. It's much
3: cheaper than therapy, and hurts less than a <laughs> book to your head. And it's more fun. Addicted to Outrage, the new book from Glenn Beck. Available everywhere books are sold.
2: Ah! Contributing editor of the uh, National Review is Andy McCarthy, and uh, we're talking about uh, what, what the Democrats, or, or I should say what the uh, prosecution uh, in New York is planning on doing with cohen and uh donald trump
3: Andy, I, I never for one moment in my entire life have i found michael cohen to be credible about anything he's ever said um this goes long before he was he turned on trump and now the media s- seems to find him very credible um is there more to this than just cohen saying trump told him to do these things or is there do they have additional evidence that makes you believe they know this really happened
5: I I think you're entirely right to be suspicious of anything this guy says. And the prosecutors know that Um, I should, I should point out that the guy who's running the uh, investigation in the Southern district is uh, Rob Kuzami, who was my partner or one of my two partners on the blind shake case. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's a, he's a whip smart lawyer and he's handled plenty of cases where uh, you have people who are, Uh, not exactly upstanding members of the community who are our main witnesses. And what you generally do with those cases is you look the jury in the eye at the beginning and say, you know, look, (laughs) we're not going to trust this guy any more than you should. And if, if somebody tells you that, uh, you know, that we're asking you to rely on his word, and nothing else, then you should just not believe that you should reject it, but look at where he's corroborated uh, and see how his testimony stacks up with the stuff that um, that you know is true. And I think what they're doing here to try to tighten up the case with respect to, uh, to him is twofold. One, they have given immunity to these guys from the National Enquirer, which would help them corroborate him on the agreement that they apparently had to try to purchase and bury stories that would be unfavorable to Trump and then I think on the back end Stu what they would do is prove up how Cohen was paid and this is where the Trump organization comes into the equation Um, after he did these payments uh, what happened in I think the payments were in uh, mid to late October of 2016 And he only paid one. The National Enquirer does one. He does the Stormy Daniels one, which is 130 grand. And what they do with that is he ends up being reimbursed by the Trump organization, which is odd because they don't seemingly have anything to do with this. Right. Um, And what the Trump organization does is they tell him we're going to do this as part of a retainer agreement. And they double the amount that he paid. Um, so so that for tax purposes, it looks like it's, you know, uh two hundred and sixty thousand so that he gets reimbursed for the full one hundred and thirty thousand. And then they on top of that gave him a sixty thousand dollar bonus. And what they told him to do was we're going to have this look like a retainer agreement. And then every month you give us an invoice for 12 months and we will pay you 35,000 a month, I think was the, uh, was the amount they settled on. So that it looks like he signed a retainer to do legal work for them beginning in January of 2017. And then he bills them once a month for 35,000. So it looks like a forward going legal contract when in fact it's reimbursement for something that happened in October. So I think from the prosecutor's standpoint, what they would say is if Trump hadn't known about this and Trump wasn't controlling it and it wasn't exactly the way that Cohen said, first of all, why on earth would Cohen be shelling out his own money to cover up Uh Trump's affairs? But also look at the way this was paid. Um, It was paid by the Trump organization and they did it in a way that was designed uh, to conceal what it was actually about. Mm.
2: Okay, so we're talking to Andrew McCarthy. Um, he is contributing editor of the National Review. He also uh, was a former federal uh, prosecutor in New York. So, can you compare this, Andrew, to um, anything else? I mean, is is I mean, I find this a big deal because the president looked at us in the face and said, "I know nothing about it. I had nothing to do with it," and it's clear that. Um, Well, you can't say he did. I think he's actually admitted that he did now at this point, didn't he? Um, So it's clear that he did know about it, and it it looks like there was some level to make it uh, go away and kind of a cover-up. Can you compare this to anything? How big of a deal is this if you take politics out of it?
5: Yeah, I think, Glenn, it's all about politics, actually. Legally, I must tell you now, and now I I kind of feel with this thing like – I'm the uh, I'm the weatherman, right? I'm here to tell you it's going to rain. Don't blame me for the rain. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't think the I don't think this is a I don't think this is a good case legally. Um, I, I I don't think that this is an in kind campaign contribution. The one thing the one case that we have that's close to it is the John Edwards case, which had a very ambiguous result. I mean, basically, it's similar facts. Uh, the Justice Department charged it as felonies. The court let it go to the jury. When a court lets a case go to the jury, that means the court has found that a rational juror could convict. Uh, but in the end, the jury acquitted on the counts that were decided, and then the Justice Department thought the case was so weak that they they decided not to retry the counts that the jury hung on. So we have a very ambiguous situation as far as... Um, uh, you know, what the law is here. I always think these regulatory things, they're not really meant for the criminal law. That's why they're usually handled as administrative fines with the, with the Federal Election Commission. And the thing I, I don't like the aspect of this where I think they could get you coming or going. So what I mean by that is, let's say Trump agreed with them and that these were campaign expenditures right? Um, if the campaign expenditures, what if he had taken campaign funds, people contribute to his campaign, and he had used campaign funds to pay hush money payments. I think the same people who are screaming felony now would be saying if that was what he had done, that he had diverted campaign funds for his personal use. Uh-huh. Hmm. So yeah. I, I just think <laughs> This is one of these things where no matter what he did, they were going to say that it was a violation of the campaign laws one way or the other. And if that's the situation you're in, that to me underscores that this is not appropriate for the criminal law. We want our criminal statutes to be very clear so that the average person can understand what the law is.
2: I mean, you said that one of the things that they want to do is restore public trust. But trust is getting worse and worse and worse because... Rosie O'Donnell didn't pay a price for doing something much worse than Dinesh D'Souza did. Barack Obama had two million dollars in campaign finance uh, irregularities, which is much bigger than than this one. Uh, And yet they just told him to pay a fine. So it's not really clearing things up. If if we were going to apply the law equally, it would. But I don't think we do.
5: Yeah, I think that's a great point prosecutorial discretion is something that's necessary for the system to function you know as a as an overarching matter but I think if you have prosecutorial discretion that's so elastic that the prosecutor can arbitrarily say based on politics or whatever else that the same conduct is handled in one case as an administrative fine and in another case as a felony prosecution I mean what they did with Dinesh D'Souza was a disgrace because that was not only a trivial violation, they actually charged it not as one felony but two Mm. uh, because they tried to lop on to that case a false statements case that you can't, if you're going to commit the campaign finance violation, Mm. that causes the filing to be inaccurate, so you have to make a false statement. So they turned something that Congress made a two-year crime into a seven-year crime.
2: Andrew McCarthy, thank you so much. Contributing editor, National Review. We'll check in again as things progress.
0: This is the best of the Glenn Beck program.
2: Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter. Um, He's got very high moral standards for his platform and it's totally a free speech platform. For most people, as long as you agree with Jack. Uh, If you don't agree with Jack, well, then it's not free speech. But you don't really deserve free speech because he's better than you are. So Jack Dorsey has decided to take a dream vacation and uh, and just get in touch with his inner self. Um, And so he's decided to go to Burma. Burma. Now. Mr. Dorsey knows a ton about virtue signaling by banning certain users who don't adhere to his progressive tenets. But when it comes to real life virtue, ah, he may be the Beethoven to tone deafness. Dorsey, uh, very proud of his recent 10 day uh, meditation vacation. And last week, he let the world know how virtuous it really was. He tweeted that his meditation was all about understanding the inner nature as we... As as a way to understand everything. It's this form of meditation uh, that has been uh, rediscovered by the Buddha twenty five hundred years ago through rigorous uh, scientific self experimentation to answer the question, how do I stop suffering? So you go to Burma, and you're wondering how to stop suffering. Well, I mean, it sounds really cool, except the multi-billionaire went uh, on that silent med- uh, uh, meditation uh, vacation to look inside himself to figure out uh, where he could stop the suffering. And all you had to do is open your eyes because you're already there. Uh, the place where you're vacationing, you know, you tweet all those beautiful, precious moments in a place called Burma. A recent unprecedented U.N. report concludes that Burma's military regime has pursued a campaign of genocide against the Muslim minority for the past year and a half. The Muslim or the regime is accused of mass rape and mass murder of over 720,000 people, Jack. Oh, yes, but I'm I'm getting in touch with my inner self because. All of the screams, they're all in the jungles, and so I can't really hear them from my hotel room. These people have fled their homeland for Bangladesh, creating the largest refugee camp in the world. But hey, the food in Burma, I mean, you know, it's great. According to Dorsey, he's tweeting pictures of his food. and He also mentioned the swell time he had listening to the music of uh, Kendrick Lamar, uh, you know, once the silent part of his retreat was over. He tweeted... Myanmar is is absolutely a beautiful country. The people are full of joy, and the food is amazing. Yeah, so is the genocide. They're pretty good at that, too. Some of the people are full of joy. Some of the other people are full of bullets. It's hard to understand why a seemingly intelligent billionaire CEO would choose to vacation in an oppressive regime like Burma. But then again, I mean, it's kind of what he does to people, too. Doesn't he chase people out of the square? Doesn't he just try to silence his foes? You know, Jack, maybe you feel right at home in Burma. So you have uh, the uh, Google uh, CEO testifying before the House Judiciary Committee, and they say, well, uh, you uh, you know, we don't have a political agenda. You don't have a political agenda? Really? Did you watch your meeting the day after the election when you all got together and said... You know, hey, we think the world's going in a different direction, but there's more we can do. What are you, what are you talking about?
3: In some ways, I almost feel like they actually believe it. And that it's not a political agenda. It's just right and wrong. Yeah, and, it's a religion. Right. It's like, you know, it's global warming is a good example of this, right? Like, it's mm. it's not a political agenda to say that we need to spend $500 trillion to stop global warming. It's just we have to or we're all going to die. Well, you know, what you're not seeing there is there is a political agenda that you're yeah. not... No, it's science, and we're right. Well, yeah, but you, what you're saying your solution is, is, there's a lot of debate on that, but they don't see it that way. It's the same thing with, like, when they're talking about deplatforming people, right? They're taking, well, you said something that was bad about Sharia law, or you said something that was bad about uh, transgenderism. Well, they don't see politics in that because it's so obvious what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. To them, they're in a bubble where 100% of the people around
2: them agree, so this is not a political issue. It's why Jack can go to, uh, to Burma. They're, they're killing Muslims. They're killing mm. Christians. They're just, they're erasing whole populations. And he's fine. He's fine. No, it's beautiful. And I'm here for meditation because uh, it's a perfect place to meditate and, and figure out what the next good thing is we can do. Well, here, here's an idea. Don't, don't, uh, don't, don't go to Burma. Uh, go to Burma and speak out about the atrocities that are happening. How's that one, Jack? I mean, I don't need even to meditate on those ones. I got them pretty quickly. Ooh, that one just came to me. Wow. And I'm still not meditating. Um, we have Google testifying in front of the House Judiciary Committee uh, about what do they do? What is it they do? What are, they, what are, you, are you tracking people? Are you banning people? Are you blocking people? Google employees sought to block Breitbart from Google AdSense. Less than a month after President uh, Donald Trump took office. Now, this is this according to leaked emails, uh, internal emails where they were just saying we got to stop Breitbart. And that is that's goes right in line with what, you know, they were talking about in that Google meeting, you know, that big corporate meeting. They were very open about it. And it doesn't have to come from the top. It can come from just a group of people in, you know, in in a room that just says, "Hey, turn this down, turn that down, change the algorithm a little bit." Nobody up in the upper end even needs to know. Not right, even if
3: it's only one
2: person, right? I mean, yep. you know, we yep. saw
3: that with what was it? It was on Twitter, didn't they ban Donald Trump, one person, on their way out yes. of the building because they were leaving? Yes, and that's a minor example. They were able to turn mm-hmm. it around pretty quickly, but. Of course, those people exist. They exist in every organization. Both sides. Yeah, especially when you're told all the time that here's a guy who wants to kill all immigrants and gay people and all the horrible things you mm-hmm. know that uh, Trump and every Republican is accused of. Well, of course,
2: you have to stop them. It's the only right thing to do. Right. And, it's, and it would happen on both sides if we had a side. I mean, if we had if we had a Google or Twitter or Facebook, I imagine that there would be people that would want to do that as well. To the other side, we got to stop. Got to stop and shut down the Antifa voices because it's just the right thing to do, right? So it's human nature, and uh, they just, like all progressives, they just deny human nature. It's in pretty critical places. Now, Facebook has just filed for a patent to calculate your future location. They have several patent applications for technology that uses your current location data to predict where you're going and when you're going to be offline. The Facebook spokesperson says that doesn't just because we filed a patent doesn't mean that we have an uh, you know, uh, an intent or is any indication that we want to follow you while you're not offline or predict where you're going. It might be a problem with our patent system, by the way, if that is a legitimate excuse.
3: We all know that they do have some use for it. But, like, you shouldn't be filing patents if you have no intention on ever using them. It's like, oh, well, I came up with an idea that theoretically could be possible. Let me patent it so that someone, when they actually come up with the idea in 20 years, has can't to pay me it. a bunch of money or yeah. can't use it at all. Right. That's why so many, I mean, this is, that's just a separate issue. But it is, uh,
2: it is a, it's, it's a bad one in the United States right now. the The application is called Offline Trajectories. And it's a method to predict where you're going to go next based on your location data. The technology described in the patent would calculate the transition probability based, at least in part, on your previously logged location data, associated with a, p- 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 a p- p- plural- <laughs> plurality plurality of uh, users who were at the current location. It will also use the data of other people you know as well as that of strangers, to make predictions. So it's going to be able to predict you based on what you've done before. It will also predict uh, you because it will go out and look at your friends and what they've done. But also, if I'm reading this right, it will look at your friends and where they are. So if your friends are gathering at some place and you're driving in the general area, likely you're going there okay you're still not convincing me this is a good use of uh of technology
3: what do you mean it's just gonna make it easier it's gonna make our lives easier so you get ads in places where you don't even have the internet that sounds horrible i don't like when i get them when i do have the internet no they just need to know where you are at all times oh that's it that's it they just is it it. do you i mean because a lot of this stuff is i've noticed this with like you know like uber and lyft type of apps and where they will you know you go a certain way a certain amount of times they say oh this must be your house this must Uh be your work the one that's really funny is the uh we have the gps in my my wife's car and it now draws new roads on the map because if we go to a place where they don't have a road mapped a certain amount of times it realizes oh there must be a road there and then draws the road on the map it's actually remapping kind of in real time which was very funny because one time I was driving down the street and I looked over and I saw this circle on the side of the road. And it kind of looks like almost like a dirt road when they draw a new road on mm-hmm. there. It was a circle. and It was like a well-defined circle and there was lines all around it. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And I pull up and I realized it was Krispy Kreme. It was where my, my, my wife had gone to Krispy Kreme with the kids so many times it thought it was a road. It, oh, my gosh. It really, it really happened, which is, I oh don't my think, gosh. probably not good for
2: the diabetes uh, future of my children. <laughs> no, but you know what? Um, Seriously, if that happened, think of the think of the implications. If that happened and you did have a problem with weight or something else, and your health insurance mm-hmm. would be alerted that you are going to Krispy Kreme a lot. times, yeah.
3: That's a great point. That data is so valuable to them. That they will do everything they can to give you things, so that you will give that data to them, right? Like, you know, there's a new um, Google phone service out, and I, you know, don't this struck me as interesting because you've
2: been so don't do it, don't do anything Google, don't have an Android, don't use Google Chrome. I, gotta put, you, I keep saying this, I gotta put it in my Google calendar remind myself to get yeah.
3: myself off of Google. Yeah, I know, uh, but it's true. Like they have um, the phone service, and it had like a a cool feature to it. I think it was like there's like thousands of like Wi-Fi hotspots that you automatically get access to if you sign up to their plan. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, I use so much freaking data. It would be great to have, just be able to hop on Wi-Fi when you're at some, you know, wherever these things are. It's kind of a cool... It's kind of a cool thing, and you don't have to learn all the passwords. It just automatically does it. And And you know what's
2: great about that is Google (laughs) pays for all of those access Mm -hmm. for your data. So they're just paying it out of the goodness of their heart. They just want your life to be easier. And so this giant corporation is just paying those billions of dollars to give you all of those free uh, Wi-Fi hotspots all over the world for everybody because they're just those. They're good. They're good people. Or... They found a way to make more money off of you because they'll have greater access to your information.
3: Hmm.
2: I think it's the second one, Stu. Hmm. And you're 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 just negative. You're I, just being negative. I
3: know. I know. And it's true. I mean, like I, I think these things a lot of times do actually make your life better. And because of that, it, we are losing it's Brave New
2: World. Yeah.
3: You said this before. You said this when we were on. We were doing our stage tour. You know, China is doing 1984, and we're doing Brave New World. Um, and it's true. We're doing this completely willingly. We're giving them all the technology. We're giving. We're giving them all the information so they can use with their technology. And. You know, it improves your life by like one eighty seventh of a percent. And we're like, eh, all right. I mean, so they know where I am all the time.
2: Right. And now predictive technology. Remember, I told you was yesterday. There was a new thing out now that shows that they can predict. There's this new scan that can predict. They've only tried it on animals where an animal is going to move next. And they, it's a, it's an incredible thing. Just just look it up. Um, through brainwaves, right? Brainwaves. Mm-hmm. And so they're shooting this thing at an animal, and it can see their brain. And the way it sees it, it distorts the animal. It actually, like, sees the movement of the animal before the animal moves. And they can predict all kinds of behavior on this. Well, this is – here they are. Here's Google saying, hey, we're going to have predictive technology, too, just – Based on what we know about you and your friends, et cetera, et cetera, on where you're going. Just look at France. What's happening in France? This is the closest to a revolution that France has had for a long, long, long time. This could end in actual revolution in France. You think with all this technology that the governments are not going to say, hey, we need to know where these people are. Mm-hmm. Of course they will. Of course they will. I mean, China's already way down that road. If you tried to have a revolution in China right
3: now, especially in a major city, you'd have no chance of being able to pull it off. Mm -mm. Now, again, like revolutions are a lot of times not so positive. (laughs) <laughs> um, but uh, most so, times most times there's most one times. there's one example I can think of that was pretty good yes uh, here mm, uh, in America yeah
2: American Revolution I think it's the only one that that ended this way well ends with the people who started, it right yes. I mean it's one thing to ends start ends with the original goal yeah and the original people and why a lot of times we saw this in with
3: the uh, in Egypt and, and throughout the The Arab Awakening, Mm -hmm. um, where it was, it winds up being some other powerful group that's not the first powerful group, but not the kids. The teenagers don't wind up taking over. And they're like, oh, we're really passionate about this this week. And then now
2: we're being crushed by the new government next week. We talked about this yesterday on the News and Why It Matters, that this what's happening in France could very well be what happened in Hungary. You know, it was top down, bottom up, inside out. And you want that, you want that, that... That core of protesters to rise caused chaos in the streets to make everybody say to the government, you got to stop this. And so the government does. Little do they know the government is not necessarily on their side. And it comes down, clamps down, and you have communist Hungary. So that's exactly how it happened in the 1950s. They did not want to be a Soviet satellite. But there were riots in the streets and enough people in high places that said, you know, we've got to do this. We have to do that. And next thing you know, the Soviet tanks are rolling in and they're a communist Soviet satellite. We could see this, except this time they have the technology to stop anybody who is um, even literally even thinking that that's a good idea. The best of the Glenn Beck Program.
1: The fusion of entertainment and enlightenment. This is the Glenn Beck Program.
2: Mackenzie Adams. She was nine years old. She wanted to be a scientist when she grew up. She excelled in math. She was always bringing home hundreds in her homework. She also liked to ride her bike, playing with dolls, PlayStation 4. She would record goofy videos with her cousins. But she just killed herself. The family is now having to bury Mackenzie on Saturday. Her body was discovered at their home in Alabama by her grandmother. What killed Mackenzie Adams? It's not a new story. It's not a new story. We'll talk to Mackenzie's family and see how they're turning a tragedy into possibly some sort of a blessing for others. We do that in 60 seconds. Mackenzie Adams, a little girl who, she was nine and committed suicide. I don't even know how that happens to a nine-year-old. This story is so tragic on many levels. Edwina Harris, the, uh, the aunt of uh, Mackenzie Adams, is with us now. First of all, Edwina, our deepest, deepest sympathies uh, go out to you and the family. I cannot imagine what you guys are going through now.
7: Thank you. It's been really hard.
2: So, first of all, tell me a little bit about uh, Mackenzie. Tell me who she was.
7: Mackenzie was a very bubbly little girl, very smart, um, very funny. She liked to tell jokes like a granddad. Um, Loved family, loved to travel, zoo, go out to eat, the beach, you know. Just a really sweet, fun, and energetic kid. (laughs)
2: So she was being bullied in uh, in school Mm -hmm. and uh, and she was being bullied, if I'm not mistaken, because she was friends with a white kid. Is that true?
7: That is true. It's more to it, of course, Um, because, you know, of course. She was cute little girl, you know, had a lot of love, you know, every jealousy is, is not just what you have, but it's who you have. Around you as well, so that was some of it. And and the family that she wrote with loved her unconditionally, as if she was theirs, because they only have one child as well. So she was like his sister. They were really really close.
2: And they would they they would pick her up for school sometimes, and she would go in. And it and was it white kids or black kids that were, or both that were? Both. There was her,
7: it was both. That was bullying her. Was both.
2: Oh gosh, man, does it ever? does it ever get better, um, in Alabama? Um, so, uh, so what was happening with the bullying that you can talk about? Like what was being said?
7: Um, basically what you guys have read, uh, the, you know, the name Carter, the B and black and, uh, on papers, it would say, kill yourself, kill yourself, things like that. Yeah. And of course, McKenzie, you know, we come, <laughs> uh, our home, we we're Baptist, so she comes from a faith-based home. We, uh, you know, we go to church. We believe in God and faith and all of those things. So what she did is not something that's taught. You know, that's not even something that's even brought up. You know, as far as suicide and killing yourself and death and things of that nature. Um, So she's taught to love everybody. And, but the bullying, you know, of course, my mom is a respected individual in this community, which is something that has been lacking to be said because my mom has master's degrees. She works for DHR and the mental health center as well. So the people that's in the school system has worked with my mom in one form or fashion or another, because my mom dealt in children's services. So, the talks of bullying my mom addressed because she knew about it. Um, the talks of how to deal with it. My mom was, these are the things that she's in her profession has always helped other people get through. So, so, so it was a breaking point on that Monday that happened at school that had to have pushed her there because she had a loving environment that. Wouldn't have, we hear, yeah. right. We, that all she had to do was,
2: do you listen, know, I do you know what happened on Monday that pushed it over the edge?
7: That is something we are still working on. I'm working diligently with chief Austin to find that information out um, because, you know, kids have their cell phones. And it's a lot of things that he's we're finding that we're still searching and trying to get final answers about. So
2: now I read that um, she was a great student, uh, hundreds on all of her tests. Um, But then recently that started to fall apart. So that was a a warning sign that was something was going on. And she did talk to your mother and the mother did talk to the the teachers. Right.
7: Absolutely. My mom went to the school. My sister called the school. Um, my mom went up there a couple of times. Um, and as I said, my mom worked with these, um, with the schools in both cities because of her profession, and they were more so of colleagues. And so, um, she talked to them and they assured her that they would make sure that she would be fine. She can come talk to them anytime she wanted. If anything was happening, she just, Mackenzie just should let them know. And that was to the assistant principal, to the counselor. And my mom was not able to speak with one of the teachers, but she was able to speak to another one. Um, so yeah, they assured my mom. I mean, my mom wouldn't keep sending my niece back if she didn't get that assurance from people that she's worked with before.
2: And the, the main bullying kid, uh, he was suspended for bullying earlier, was he not?
7: Now, I don't know about suspension, but I do know he was put in in-school suspension. Well, you know, in-school, the ISS, not completely suspended from okay. school, which is what he needed to be expelled from school, but he was put in in-school suspension, yes. And my- with that came documenting documentation, which my mother does possess a carbon copy of that information where that incident took place when he was put in in in-school suspension and my niece was wrote up for standing up for herself.
2: So, um, I can't, I just, I, I, you know, I have kids and, uh, at nine years old, I mean, I'm worried about my, you know, my, my 14 year old son and my 12 year old girl, uh, and I see the rate of suicide going through the roof and something is happening with our kids, but at nine it's, it's, this is just, it's stunning. Um, and I've, I've been thinking about you guys and praying about you and your family, but I also feel so, uh, I'm so worried about her friend who, I mean, how is it? Do you have any idea how the family is dealing with this, so he doesn't feel like my friend just because I was white, or just because we were friends, or whatever the reason that she's dead now? I I just this this is such he hasn't a tragedy.
7: Been He's actually at the beach right now. They, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if they're going to return him, um, which I highly recommend, and that's my recommendation for any parent that really feels in their heart that my mother did what she said, which was went to the school and reported it, that if you feel in your heart that my mother did what she said, because you know my mom, everybody in this area knows my mom and my dad, their respective individuals in this county, um, to move your kids. Because if this is what they want to say, what more will they do if it was your child? If your kids are feeling threatened at school, please move them. Please move them because sending your kids out of your home from your protection to give them to someone that will fail to protect them, that is not a good feeling. I am a mother. I am also in the school systems in Atlanta as well. And I take what I do very seriously. When you have allowed your kids to leave your home and come into my possession, they are now my children. And I'm going to protect them in every fiber of my being. I am not a punk educator. I am not scared of these kids that think that bullying is okay. I stand up to these kids just as I did in high school. When this happened, an outpour of people that I had protected, some I honestly have forgot because it was my heart to do that. If I saw somebody being mistreated, I would step up for them. But I was also one of the popular kids. So I was in band and cheerleading and different things like that. But that was my duty in my position, just as I have one now in media in Atlanta, to stand up and be this voice for those people that that can't do that and those individuals like you're doing I don't know how this happened to your niece when all you did was took care of me all through high school all through middle school or whatever the time frame it was that I protected those individuals and it wasn't just one or two it was you know 40, 50 different people that, and I was like oh my god I like, girl where are you you know I forgot because that's just who I am that's just what my family who my family is and for it to happen to my niece it was heartbreaking because nobody stood up for my niece Nobody, the karma that we've done for people, the good, my niece had to suffer with this. No teacher stood up like my mom and my dad and myself have stood up in the education system. My aunts that are teachers and professors and, you know, doctors in in education. Nobody stood up for my niece. Nobody stood up for my baby. Nobody. Really?
2: You have have started a... uh... A GoFundMe page called the McKenzie Foundation. You can find it just by searching for McKenzie Foundation Um, And uh, you have a goal of ten thousand dollars. You've already gotten three thousand dollars and You want to focus not just on the bullied, but you also want to focus on the bully him 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 or herself in what way
7: well when this happened, some of those guys that I did go to school with and some people I didn't know, they said, well, Edwin, I just want to be honest with you, I was the bully. And the reason I'm telling you is because I trust you, but I also read where the person that I used to bully in school was stating a story how their life is still in turmoil because They have been bullied for so long in school. So it doesn't stop when you're an adult. Mm -hmm. These things live with you for the rest of your life. So said so many people that I've been reading that have been inboxing me. So I want to bring in those people that have opened up to me and that was a bully. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm talking with them to see what was happening in your life at this time that made you feel that coming to school to bully someone else was okay. And if the stories varies. It's from things that happened with drug addiction. It was a single parent home. Um, other family members were bullying them, so they came to school and bullied someone else. So the bully has to heal first. Because if we can target and 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 help the bully, they couldn't bully, They won't bully someone else because the it takes a bully for there to be bullying.
2: Edwina Harris, um, the aunt of, uh, Mackenzie, uh, Adams. Uh, I, uh, m- my wife and I, um, uh, wish we could be at the funeral on, uh, Saturday. I don't know why. I just feel so attached to, um, Mackenzie and, and what she went through and, uh, uh, the, the little boy, um, as well. And I just want you to know that you're in our thoughts and in our prayers, Thank and you. uh and blessings to you and the family and and may this turn out to be in the long run something that will uh, bring honor to Mackenzie's name for a long long time to come yes sir thank you so thank much you. if you would like to uh donate you can go to go fund me uh it's the mckenzie foundation they're trying to reach ten thousand dollars um to be able to uh to be able to have some of these uh, former bullies uh, come in and um, maybe make a difference, it's worth a try. GoFundMe.com. Right back into uh, programming. This is the Glenbeck program. So, up at Glenbeck.com today, there is uh, a, a, a flashback uh, of something that we did. Uh, stu, I haven't even seen it yet. Uh, But it's a flashback of uh, me in 2008 talking about Baby, It's Cold Outside and and saying, well, look how ridiculous this song is.
3: (laughs) Yeah. You basically predicted all of the 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 terrible things that have been said about Baby, It's Cold Outside from back in the day. I someone actually speculated after we posted it that, you know, someone from the left was going through to try to catch you on something um, from a million years ago, some horrible thing you said, and just thought that this was a good idea. You're mocking the idea that maybe it's cold outside is about date rape. But now that's a thing that's actually believed by every person who says they love social justice online. Um, And you kind of predicted the whole controversy about 10 years ago. (laughs) First of all, it's a very funny segment. Is it is arable still? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, well, I don't know if it's arable per se. Go listen to it online. because uh, so say. much you say like
2: last week is no longer arable this week.
3: No, I mean, certainly Kevin Hart has find that out. Yeah, uh, ten
2: years old,
3: that's not gonna go well. No, but it was real it's very funny. And well, you're and you're mocking the idea that someone would think, you know, this is about date rape, but I mean if you if you want this. to read it that way, if you want to hear the song in that light you, you can. can it, it is you like it's, it's very funny and that it can have that meaning obviously that was not the intent you talked about this yesterday the intent was actually the exact opposite the intent was to say
2: it was freeing for women at the yeah, time women could make their own sexual decisions women could be coy and play hard to get and say yeah i'm gonna stay uh, that was not a, a role of a woman back when that song was written. You right. didn't do this. So this was a very empowering, a woman empowering song. Uh, context matters, right? No. It's supposed to. No, not anymore. But if you
3: go back and listen to this, and it's it's a very it's a very fun Christmas listen. Uh it's at glenbeck.com. We tweeted and put it on Facebook as well. It's it's <laughs> it's worthwhile, especially because you see now today people who are supposed to be you know, trustworthy arbiters of culture are making all of the points you're making for real.
2: They're saying these things are really it's offensive. It's, it's really crazy. bizarre. All right, you find that at Glenbeck.com. Uh let me talk to you about uh have you ever heard of uh, Jimmy Johns, the sandwich place? Oh heard of it. Yeah, okay. I've been there many times. Uh this this bastard. What are you Jimmy do? Johns? Oh, he's just showing off. Oh no, really. Yeah, he went into a a Walmart in Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, paid off $81,000 worth of layaway goods, probably only to do it just to get his name in the paper and um, have everybody think good thoughts about him. These bastards. You know, what a jerk. Yeah. I, what a jerk. Clearly not a Christian. <laughs> you know. And Tyler Perry. Wow. What a showboat that guy is. Yeah. I, this
3: is uh, seemingly going around, I think, w- w- some... Some, uh, uh, I guess someone who sees themselves as a competitor of yours mm-hmm. uh, over, uh, what is it, Daily Caller or something? It's like, it's like, the, we, I never understand this. It's like, we're if we're all like kind of fighting for conservative values, you know, I never understand why everyone gets so nasty with each other. That's always been a bizarre, mm-hmm. a bizarre feature, but I guess, whatever. you know, it's media, whatever. whatever. Um, and I guess they're 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 trying to, uh, to make your, your, your donation look bad. Um, well, because you're just looking for attention? I should have be
2: qui- been quiet. I, I did see a theory online, I love this one, that I am so broke <laughs> that I'm only doing this to look like I'm not broke. Ah, it's uh. brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, if you're living under a bridge,
3: work that magic tonight. Right. Uh, you know, look, I, I don't understand that. I mean, you know, Bono used to get beat up all the time, sometimes by conservatives, who would say, oh, he's selling these t-shirts and a portion of them is going to... Uh, you know, some charity. I always thought that was great. Yeah, you know, I don't think that was... Consi- I don't think most people did because it's a celebrity and and he's making a big deal out of it and, he's, and, and they, they, they put these in stores all over the country. Oh, it's a capitalist thing. And they went after... At the end, they were like, well, only 10% of the money, uh, you know, for these shirts winds up going to the charities. And mm. it's like, well, that was kind of what was promised. Uh, 10% of the proceeds will go yeah. to charity and wind up donating millions and millions of dollars to charity through this. And if he didn't talk about it, no one would buy the shirts. If Tyler Perry would
2: have kept this secret, it wouldn't have given me the idea. Or Kid or Rock. Kid Rock. Or Jimmy John's. Or you, the the thousands of people all around the country who heard these ideas and went, "I'm going to do that." It's great. It's fantastic. Can we please relax and just enjoy the holiday spirit,
0: please? the best of the Glenn Beck program.
2: So my staff of millennials are talking about adulting. I don't even know what adulting is. And a quarter-life crisis. What the heck is a quarter-life crisis? Well, we're about to find out. Uh, J.P. Pokluda is an author of a book called Welcome to Adulting, and it is taking uh, millennials by storm. Welcome, J.P. How are you?
6: Hey, I'm doing so great. Thanks for having me on, Glenn. Appreciate you. You, you. you bet. Okay, so J.P., what
2: exactly is adulting?
6: Well, it is the practice of behaving in a way characteristic of a responsible adult, especially the accomplishment of a mundane but necessary task. If that sounds like I read that from the dictionary, it's because I did. It's a, it's a new word. We just put that in the dictionary last year, and so it is official.
2: So this is something that we used to just do naturally. When you were 18, you were, at least in my household, you were kind of expected to go out and earn your own way, and, you know, you're an adult now. Get out. <laughs> And now we why the breakdown of this thing that has always been natural?
6: Well, I don't know that it's always been natural. I mean, I think I think hindsight is always 2020 when we look back on, you know, our own development and how we've grown up. And I know what they're saying about millennials and young adults today, the delayed adolescence, they're lazy, narcissistic. I don't think that's Uh, entirely true at all. And, uh, and I, I appreciate, you know, it sounds like we may have a shared perspective on that because I, it seems like we've all, we all need help growing up and exist in different times and whatnot. And I, when I look at the future uh i'm i'm hopeful i i think these guys they they need leaders they need people to inspire them but i i think they they want to do something great they want to change the world they want to do something bigger than themselves and and i hope this is a resource that helps them do that
2: okay so this is part of the this is part of the problem i think with suicides that are rising in millennials And it is that that people just aren't convinced that they can make a difference, that their life has no meaning, that there is no purpose to anything. Is this what the quarter life crisis is about?
6: I think that's absolutely right, Glenn. I, I think people are looking for purpose. I think they're looking in the wrong places. I think they have a thousand friends on social media, you know, a thousand Twitter followers, you know, whatever. and, and But no real relationships, no depth, uh, no meaningful conversations. They're not looking for hope in the right places. And so they despair. You know, they they want to be their number one and number two goals of millennials are to be rich and to be famous. And uh, oh. and when they, they hit the, the wall of pursuing riches and pursuing stardom uh, they're left despairing and they're
2: looking for more i will tell you that wealth and fame are gigantic imposters and Mm -hmm. what really led me to my awakening in my 30s was i you know i had accomplished a little bit of both and realized that's completely empty and then had no idea where to go and where to find it Brad Pitt says the same thing. Tom Brady
6: says the same thing. Jim Carrey says the same thing. Russell Brand uh, just came out with a statement saying the sa- same thing. Uh, you know, they they say. My friend Todd says the the rich are infinitely better off than the poor because while the poor think riches will bring happiness, the wealthy know better and uh, i th- i think that's a true statement the
2: same is is with fame i will tell you that i don't think there was this spread of misunderstanding between generations when i was a kid maybe between my grandparents and and me uh, because they grew up in the great depression but not my parents and and me i mean there was a the misunderstanding but things in the world have changed so much that when you talk to millennials now and i'm you know 54 you talk to millennials and it is a different world they see the world differently they speak a different language they understand technology and the world as it's going to be much better and uh, you know i i think they have a reason to be a, a little concerned if they don't have somebody in their life that's you know, an older generation going, it's okay. It's okay. It's it's really exciting. What you guys are facing is really exciting. And you're going to be able to change the world if you keep your head on your shoulders.
6: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. You have to have someone to talk to. I also think you're pointing to the right challenges with the, the information age, the boom of technology, you know, carrying a mega computer in our pockets everywhere we mm-hmm. go. Uh, that does change a person. And so it's interesting what you say about the gap between you and your parents being smaller Uh, I I think that that's probably, I I would share your perspective. And at the same time, I think that we all go through something I like to call kind of the the younger brother, older brother syndrome, which uh, comes, I I picked that up from the biblical story, The Prodigal Son, where I think we're all kind of the, the older, I mean, the younger brother at some point, and someone is patient with us and, you know, embraces us and extends grace to us. And then, you know, we're, we're with the father and all is right. And we grow up and we overnight become the older brother. And then Mm -hmm. we just look back with judgment and we don't want to be patient with anyone else. And, and so I, I try to, you know, when i sit with someone you know who's young and naive and just like i was and i'm sure am in ways i can't see right now just to be patient with them seek to understand their world where they're coming from what is their worldview, and uh and you
2: know point them to truth so what is the number one thing that they are concerned about and and how can people who are listening help them Uh, i think
6: dating right at that point in your life you've graduated college and you're you're trying to figure out how you can convince someone of the opposite sex to spend the rest of their life with you. Uh, Anxiety is a huge felt need right now. As you talk about just growing suicide rates and depression rates, I think you have a generation despairing out of control. Um, and so that's a huge felt need. But the biggest one you also touched on keenly is just searching for purpose. I think mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out, hey, uh, you know, is there, well, is there a God, first of all, and if there is, what is his desire for me and how do I find my purpose in this world? And so that is, I don't know that that's the, the felt need. I think the felt need can be more of the, the dating and anxiety, but the real need, the underlying need is, is hey, what were you created for? I, I, and uh, that's where I think this, this book, you know, the, chapter two is all about purpose and finding your identity.
2: I will tell you, the name of the book is Welcome to Adulting, by the way. Um, And I'll tell you, JP, that I searched for answers for a long time, and in my 30s, I had a complete crash, and I lost absolutely everything. And it was only then that I was willing to look at the real answer, which is God, and you know he had been just this distant kind of thing that I believed in, and but I, it wasn't really a real relationship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, 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 you know, I, it's not something that is being encouraged at all in a large portion of our society now, and and uh, you know, churches uh, seem so out of touch to so many millennials. I mean, it's different here in in uh, the South, but seem completely distant and god is kind of this distant idea and i we were just listening to some audio from uh from the wildfires in california i don't think i've heard so many californians talk about god ever mm-hmm. you know when yeah. you're when you are really stripped down that's when you start to find answers that's when you you yeah, know in the midst of human suffering that's where you find him and they say there's no atheist in the foxhole and i i you, we've seen that we almost saw a
6: great awakening happen with uh when 911 occurred uh whenever there's whenever tragedy hits we we turn to the creator i've seen the same thing in Haiti when the earthquake hit in t- 2010 um you, you had the whole country coming around saying okay now you know turning from satanism to okay we think there's a a creator a god and that's that's similar to my story glenn i mean 16 years ago i was at a bar on a saturday night and was kind of everything wrong with Dallas in a person was pretentious. I wanted to be a millionaire before I was thirty. I had the Jaguar and the penthouse condo, and and was you know a girlfriend and another you know several girls and all all of that just in one person. And uh... I was at a bar and someone invited me to church, and I I came to Watermark, and I sat in the back row and I was hungover. I smelled like smoke from the night before, you know, at the club, and uh, I was addicted to sex, addicted to porn. And um, I just began to wrestle with, who, you know, who is God and and really seeking that out. And I looked at all of the world religions because I thought, what are the odds I'd be born to the right country? You know, if I was born in China, I'd be Buddhist or India, I'd be Hindu and Iran, I might be Muslim. And so I just started studying, started from scratch. You know, I grew up in the church, but I was just like, really had a bias against Christianity. And as I continued to explore that, I was overwhelmed by the evidence that pointed me to Jesus Christ. And uh, when I surrendered my life to him, just as that, that person that I described earlier, everything changed. What I did for fun changed, who I hung out with changed. Uh, the way I thought changed, the way I talked changed, and ultimately you know, my profession changed. And so I'm so passionate about helping the next generation reach this generation, we'll call it Gen Y or Gen Z, millennials, young adults. Um, i i want to see that gap you addressed earlier become narrower and smaller, so that you know we can raise it up because because all of us we have to we know we 're going to leave this place. And you want to leave a legacy. You want to leave yep. people behind you that are are seeking to, you know, live out their purpose in
2: this world. JP, I'm 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 thrilled to have you on. It sounds like we have a lot of uh, shared experiences and shared belief in uh, the younger generation. I think they get a very bad rap. Uh, you know, I've met good and bad, but I've met good and bad in all generations. Uh, this right. this generation is looking they just don't have anyone encouraging and anyone who is telling them truth. they've been lied to I think their whole their whole life uh, and uh, and I have great confidence in them. so thank you so much for what you're doing. And the name of the book is welcome to Adulting. Welcome to Adulting Jonathan JP. Pokluda. Thanks for being on we'll talk again. <laughs> Okay, for the first time in 10 years, new rules on exercising. Remember, I think we're at butter is okay again, aren't we? Butter was okay, then it was bad, mm-hmm. then it was really bad, then it was okay, then it was bad again, and I think we're back to butter is okay. I think you're right. Okay, so it's a little slower, but for the first time in 10 years, they've come up with new exercise guidelines, and when I say they, I would have had to read the story a little bit more deeper to know who they are, but I think we all know that's what they want you to believe. <laughs> And this is all framed as good news, okay. Uh, the new exercise uh, guidelines aren 't increasing the recommended amount of exercise for teens and adults. okay, that sounds like good news that does, sound but like they 're not decreasing them either. Wow, so that sucks. However, they do change the definition of exercise a bit, so it is easier to hit. Uh, this comes from the Journal of American Medical Association and the Department of Health and Human Services. And if you're not hitting the guidelines that were released in 2008, don't feel bad. Eight and ten people are like, "Yeah, I don't give a flying crap what they say." <laughs> um, but but here's the subtle but important change: they no longer define exercise as an activity that lasts at least ten minutes so now what how many minutes is it no it doesn't just any kind of any kind of heart rate increase you can count that time for any length of time so now if that's true sex counts for most people (laughs) there you go (laughs) you know you can i will say too i'm
3: i'm not going to start exercising more (laughs) but i am going to be closer to the minimum amount of exercise i need to do correct because zero is closer to whatever they're saying now than 10.
2: yes um. So if you just park a little bit further away from your office, that counts now as exercise.
3: And that's a good thing to
2: do if there are no spots that are closer they, than the one that you're going right, to. That's right. Mm-hmm. They say you don't have to go to the gym for 10, 15, or 30 minutes, which I don't have to worry about crossing that off my calendar because I'm not doing it now. Although that will lower your exercise, now the whole they're, swiping. <laughs> The calendar
3: d- vent off. You're right. Yeah.
2: I, it's, I, so I am exercising. Mm-hmm. I'm, well, no, I can't cross it off. I could put it in and then cross it off, and I'm doing double the exercise. Ooh. They say it's still two to 2.5 to 5 hours of moderate intensity exercise, or 1.25. No, this is per week. Or 1.25 to 2.5 hours of vigorous intensity exercise per week. <sighs> Five like, week hours. is the seven-day one, right? I know. I could watch five hours of television or Netflix, but I can't walk for five hours. That's just... This is, they do oof. keep...
3: I feel like... I don't know if it, these studies are actually showing this or they're just dumbing it down. Like, there was a study that came out a few years ago that said uh, it's as, as effective to do 10 minutes of high-intensity exercise um, uh-huh. as it is to do, like, 45 minutes to an hour of lower-intensity exercise. And that seems... Like, wow, like 10 minutes. Of course, I can do 10 minutes. And I don't, I mean, I, that's kind of makes some sense to me, like, because it's high intensity. But the other part of me just thinks they're just like, well, let's get them to do one minute. If we say 10, maybe they'll do one. So Jeez. do you, do you rem- <laughs> <laughs> they're just so round and, and blubbery. Can we at least, we are not all Santa Claus. We just Claus, don't guys, want despite- to look
2: like the cartoon Wally you know you don't want to look cuz i think that's what we're all going to turn into mm-hmm. um so when you're looking at the high intensity exercise do you remember when we first met Ray Kurzweil in 2006 yes okay Ra- ray kurzweil mm-hmm. is a you know futurist um he's a transhumanist he is he takes is it, like 600 uh, tablets of of different minerals and everything else a day. Yeah. Yeah, he's like I I mean you'd be swallowing pills all day. All day. Would you get full by that? I don't know. I, I feel like you th- wouldn't want to eat anything else. You'd yeah. just be filled with p- pills all the so time. So he's taking all of these supplements uh every single day and he really watches everything and he invented this exercise machine that is a total body workout. And And I remember looking at it because he said, you do use it for five days or five minutes a day and you got everything you need. And the guy's in really good shape. And when I met him in 06, he had just started looking at his five years before started checking his actual physical age Mm -hmm. of his tissue. I don't even know how you do this, Uh, but he had gone back eight years in physical age when I had seen him the the next Hmm. time. Um, this is the thing that's in like the Sky Mall magazine, isn't it? It Was like one of those devices where you're. It might have been one of those, but he. But I think he came up with it, and he uses it every day. And oh. everybody then said, "Oh no, that's nothing," because you can't do it for five minutes, and that's that won't help you at all. And he was the guy going, "Yeah, no, it helps a lot. Do it." So, I'm only fat because the government said I couldn't not be fat in five minutes.
1: You're listening to
4: Glenn
5: Beck.